Hello and welcome to the Blitz Book Club podcast, where our community of bookworms will bring you our thoughts on all things books. My name is Cheryl Till, and in this episode, we are turning our attention to books that have been made into movies, specifically Australian author Jane Harper's 2016 debut novel, The Dry. To start, I would like to acknowledge the Bidigal and Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation and the Ngunnawal people whose land on which UNSW resides. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening along with us today. This is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. So I am joined today by... I'm Ari. I'm Axel. I'm Henry. And I'm Kevin. So The Dry did incredibly well as a novel. It earned numerous international and Australian awards, and the film adaptation released, I think, at the beginning of January this year, became one of the highest-grossing Australian film openings weekends of all time. So I don't know about you guys, but I tend to find that movie adaptations are a good indication of the quality of the book. What do you think? Any thoughts? I always feel like there's a dichotomy with movie adaptations of books that they will either do far worse or far better, and there's not a huge amount of in-between. I haven't seen the film of The Dry, so I'm unable to speak on that one. But I am someone who always wants to read the book first, and... I don't know. I feel like there's so much in the dry that could be picked up on or enhanced or a lot of nuance lost. So I'm curious to watch it. Yeah, I would agree as well. I'm usually always the type of person who would read the book first. But I feel like when books, I feel like I've mentioned this before in in previous podcasts, but like when a book is so, so good, as Axel said, there's going to be details, really small things that maybe films won't be able to pick up. So I feel like it's always like a double-edged sword in a way because readers, in a way, won't be satisfied with the movie because of those small details that weren't picked up. But those small details are very only really appreciated by the readers and thus the decision not to manifest them into the actual film. So I feel like sometimes it can be a lose-lose situation. I feel like very rarely it's both sides are completely satisfied with the final product, with the movie being adapted from the book. I mean, yeah, there are definitely exceptions. Like, I would say Lord of the Rings meets Mark on both the counts. This one in particular, I felt like I wasn't 100% convinced I liked the book to begin with, but I felt like the movie by comparison was dead boring. Like, it was a struggle to sit through it because it just missed out so many of those little details that add in the suspense and tension. And when you're watching it, it just moves through events so quickly because there's obviously a time limit. So... I think the movie actually gave me a greater appreciation for the book than I originally had. That's really interesting. I mean, I guess I'm going to be the positive one here today. I like both the book and the movie. I don't think the movie is as good as the book. It's one of those cases where I don't think the dry is filmable, but you do hear a lot of great books out there described as unfilmable or unadaptable. And I think a large part of that is because the mediums are so different, cinema and literature, right? And I think it's mostly due to the way authors can use language to like create descriptions within one sentence and how it connects with each other, right? It's that flow of language that you can't do in cinema. Like it's a completely different flow. Instead of commas and full stops, it's cuts and fades and and camera movement. And with the dry, what's lost is all the descriptions about the environment and the character's feelings that puts you in a certain state, I feel like. It's done so well in the book, but there's no way for them to do it in a movie. Well, not in this type of movie. And you can't really make the dry into more art housey or experimental film because that'll be a terrible decision. But overall, I think the movie is a good adaptation. It 
doesn't do anything wrong, but it doesn't do anything really spectacularly well either. But I do love the book. We can talk about that later. One of the things I love most about the book is uh, the detail of the description. I'm not a very big crime reader, so as a genre, it still feels a bit strange to me. And the plot, I wasn't utterly enchanted with it. But what really kept me reading was, yeah, the detail of the environment and the tiny little physical and environmental details that were so absorbing. Like one moment that keeps coming back to me is when Gretchen and Falk are sitting in the pub and Gretchen's wine glass leaves condensation on the table and she swells her fingers through the condensation. And I've never seen something described in that way that's just so mundane, but it felt so much like I was in the room, I could see that from the way the language was used. And that's the type of thing that I think in film loses a bit of its magic because it's just, you get to watch mundane things happening. But I think in a book, it's those types of details that can make or break the world building. So for me, all of the descriptive language is what made the book carry on for me. It wasn't the plot, it was the world. For me, I think The Try is probably one of like the best book I've ever like haven't I have read in a really long time because um it really reminded me of Gone Girl if anyone have read that book and um I actually finished it in one day because it was so intriguing and interesting like I kept reading on and on I think there's some moments in the book that really makes the author really stand out like for example if you guys recall in one of the chapter I forgot her name the girl who died her father went into her room and he saw a dent in the wall and he thought that she had punched the wall because she was mad at him. But it turns out that he was one, that he like he bashed her head against the wall. And I think that sort of detail makes it really interesting to read. That's why I read it in one sitting. Not really in one sitting, but in like in one day. And I find that really interesting because that exact same detail for me, like about Ellie's bedroom and the pink carpet and the dent, that just made it so predictable. And I was like, oh my God, this is just another murder mystery plot. I know exactly what's going to happen. And I was not surprised at all by the ending. Like from the beginning, you knew exactly what had happened to Ellie. There were no surprises there. And that's what made me dislike the book. Even though, like Axel said, I do really agree that the descriptions are great. I was reading it and it was raining, pouring outside. I think it was like seven degrees. It was cold, right? And I could feel the heat that he was talking about. I could imagine the dry and I loved that scene in the book only. I will say it definitely does not translate in the movie, but in the book where he goes to the river and he suddenly realizes the river's not there. Like he didn't picture how dry the dry was actually gonna be, right? With the drought. And I think it really captures very well, especially for people living in the city who, you know, we talk about drought, it's like, okay, useless water, but it doesn't really make sense beyond that. It's like we have a couple extra cents on the milk for the farmers, but you don't really get what it means until you have a realization like that. And I think that kind of description is what sold it. And I also felt even though there's a lot of this dwelling on the heat and everything, which obviously is the premise for the book. It was surprisingly enjoyable because it didn't like beat you over the head with the Australian setting, right? It doesn't dwell too much on being super bogan or like all about the Australianness of it. It's just like there's casual mentions of um, a huntsman and a redback and it's organic and natural in the way it flows. It just feels like someone's telling a story instead of like trying to really build this setting to make it believable for people who don't really know it. So I think that's what I did actually like about the book, even though I will say the crime thriller murder mystery plot was not really for me. 
I think it is very, it's so Australian though, it, it, even in the details, right? It doesn't have to, it doesn't need every character to be the most spoken person you've ever met, right? And I think that's kind of what, what surprised me because I had never read an Australian novel that was so, that kind of felt like it didn't need to be Australian to be good. Like the story could be set anywhere and still be interesting, at least for me. But it, the setting and the description of the small town enhanced it it was almost like and I connected a lot with it because there's something Australian about coming from a small place or like people knowing each other or the idea of high school and, and childhood trauma like covering across something so Australian about that that's it like I know it's universal but I feel like you you see that with a lot of Australian people they reflect back to whatever happened decades ago and I just I feel like I don't know am I wrong about that <laughs> am I crazy I mean, I think that that is something that's universal, but that's more pointed in some Australian stories because we have such a large geographical area. It's like being rural in England, for example, doesn't mean a huge amount because you're still within 100 kilometers of a really major city, you're within 10 kilometers of another large town. But here, if you're in a rural community, you're trapped. It's in just how much space there is, I think. And I think that something that Harper did really well with the book was playing the tension between the characters who go to Melbourne and, and have been in those bigger environments coming back to the town. And yeah, what you're saying really resonates with me. Yet I think that it is something that a lot of Australians associate with being in a small community and that, that tracking over generations. So yeah, I think it is a universal impulse, but I think it's a lot more acute for a lot of Australians. It's like the plot could play out anywhere, but the fact that it's such a small community and they're so overwhelmed by the dry and the heat, that just made the tension a lot more believable to, to me. Just the idea of being in that heat all the time and the financial climate of it. Yeah, I think it, it's a really cool use of the setting, even if the plot was sort of not hugely surprising. I mean, yeah, I think the way setting played into it was really, really good. I did like that aspect of it. I think I'm just thinking by comparison to like, if you know Henry Lawson's short stories, which are all set in rural areas as well, they don't really have the same clout as this book. And that's what I meant when it's not really beating you over the head, right? It's organic. It's not tedious in the way it's described. It's just there and it's a fact and it's not something you have to keep drilling into the reader for them to believe it. And I think that is really what makes the description great um, and kind of like it sells the book. I think I'm also just going off of what Kevin was saying, the way that it resonates with us is maybe because we all have shared that Australian experience, you know. Yeah, as I said, like we're we're from the same area. So I feel like it's easy to envision the characters in these in this book as people we've actually met in real life. So like with Gretchen as being a teacher and things like that, you know, I feel like I've totally come across someone in my life during primary school that, you know, looks like her and I because we're from the same background as these people, geographically at least, there's already, like, from the get-go, there's already an inherent kind of link between us and, like, these characters because we can envision them as, as people in our own lives. But I think going off what Cheryl said, 
you mentioned that the plot was really predictable, but from someone who's just watched the movie, like without the book or anything, and Kevin knows this, I was so confused by the plot, like so confused to the point where like every 10 minutes I was messaging him saying like, I don't understand what's going on. There was like two mysteries in a way and like they combined it into one story, but they still like at the end there was, I felt as though, you know, the ends hadn't been tied yet. There was no ends that met for me. Of course, like people, I guess, main character figured out what happened to Ellie and things like that here and there. But still there was like subplots that I felt were really, if the author placed them strategically, I didn't quite comprehend that through watching the movie, I think. I I found it really interesting as someone who uh, watches quite a bit of crime but doesn't read it because I feel in a way that Harper was writing a crime TV show and maybe that's the sense with all crime novels and I'm just not familiar enough with them. But in terms of the way that each character had some level of mystery and intrigue to them and everyone's a suspect and it did feel like there was such a tension with every subplot, it felt more cinematic to me than the novels that I'm usually reading. Does that resonate with you, Cheryl and Kevin, who've read and seen it? Okay, see, the thing I would say about that is the key that you've touched on there is that it's written like a television series and not like a movie. There is not enough space to explore it in the film, and I think that's what lets you down about the film. I mean, the book really reminded me of Harlan Coben's work, which has a lot of that kind of scene by scene where it slowly unfolds, and that translates really, really well into all the series that have been made out of it. I think, like, The Stranger on Netflix and things like that, those really meet the mark. And I feel like if The Dry had been made into a series in that way, as opposed to a movie, that's what would have actually sold it to me a little bit more. Perhaps what confused Ari is because, like you said, there wasn't enough time for a lot of these subplots or the hints to play out and stick in people's minds in the movie. Because the movie's less than two hours, I think, or maybe just around two hours. And the mysteries of the book, if adapted you know, well for it to be fleshed out. It has to be at least three or four hours, I'd imagine, like a miniseries. It feels like a three-part miniseries would do justice with the plot points. Yeah, explaining the plot to Ari, though, actually kind of made me appreciate it a bit more, at least the version of the novel, because what I love about it is that it's actually two separate mysteries, one with Ellie and one with Luke and Luke and his family, and both of them are so separate. They're completely separate, separated by time and by everything. The only thing that links them together is Aaron. And because he's dealing with his own trauma and confusion about Ellie, he's the one in his mind that connects it together. And because of that, we kind of connect the two mysteries together in the beginning, at least. But it's all a red herring. It's like red herrings everywhere, you know. And I really like that. And it's done so well in the book because each time it flashbacks, at least for me, I was very interested in, in Ellie and Luke and Aaron's childhood. For me, that was the crux of the story. Like every time it flashed back, I was like, okay, this is fleshing them out so much. This is so interesting. And like Ari said, there's something realistic there. There's something realistic about the way the novel describes high school friendships or that kind of blossoming romance. The language she uses is so simple, but in my mind, I was like, okay, I see that. I relate to it, and I know people who relate to it. And it's what makes Ellie's death and the things that she's dealing with so painful, because you, everyone knows an Ellie. Everyone knows a Luke or an Aaron. The character of Luke in particular, the small acts of cruelty and 
the sort of he thinks he's being funny but what what he's doing really hurts people when he pretended to fall from the cliff edge i remember things like that from high school it was viscerally painful <laughs> to read that just the thing of someone absolutely not sympathizing with peers concern for them yeah i i was so engaged with the young adult plot and i i enjoyed the adult plot as well but i think that Falk's Aaron's, um, so he's referred to as Aaron when he's a teenager and Falk when he's an adult, which is a cool narrative device, I think. I think that his psyche is made so much richer and all of the things that he's looking at around him in the current day are made so much richer by his distress and his nostalgia and his mourning for the teenage years. Yeah, and I think a cool thing about that as well, I mean, touching on what Kevin said, I feel like everyone knows a Luke as well. Like, everyone can picture someone who is a Luke. And what I did like about that is that even though there's some confusion about how he turns out, there is character development because the way people think about him, they're like, oh yeah, well, he was kind of dumb and stupid and, you know, having all sorts of reprehensible behavior when he was a teenager but as an adult he was respected and he found his place in the world and I think I like the way that kind of has a bit of a redemption arc even as we are you know going through this investigation to see whether or not he actually murdered his entire family which is like the worst thing you could possibly do and it's really interesting how she balanced those two aspects of his personality. Yeah, I think the characters are really interesting in this story. As everyone has just described, there's like an incredible backstory and and reading about these characters. And as Kevin said, you know, how they were fleshed out throughout the story was probably like a a really big highlight for you or me both, regardless. So I think like, even though I didn't completely understand the plot from the get-go or even at the end. The characters were really interesting and that's something I really, really enjoyed. The atmosphere, as we distinguished earlier, is really, really great. And I really did like how they depicted the rural kind of Australia. And I know in the previous episode, um, Cheryl, we were talking about how usually Australian-based novels aren't usually what what we gravitate to a lot of the time. But with this, when I started watching the film, I really, really actually enjoyed how it was filmed and everything. Like, it kind of gave me, I don't know if you guys have watched the movie Nocturnal Animals. Um, It has, yeah, it's directed by Tom Ford, written by Tom Ford as well, I think. And it has Jake Gyllenhaal and the redhead, the really wonderful redhead, forgot her name. But the the fashion designer Tom Ford uh, is the one who directed it and wrote it. And that movie is obviously very critically acclaimed and it is a mystery as well. And obviously I feel like it had a little bit more of a bigger audience considering the names that were within within that film but I think the drive like replicated that atmosphere really really nicely as well because Nocturnal Animals is kind of based in outback America a little bit as well or at least in a more isolated place so in that way I really really appreciated how everything was filmed there was kind of like this weird silence around the town that I really appreciated and I feel like it communicated really well through the screen obviously anyone who has read the book you are more than welcome to disagree or agree and although it's not really up to par in any kind of mystery that I've read or watched I still can really appreciate how they establish that kind of atmosphere because I'm a really big atmosphere and environment person and same as Axel, I'm not like a massive mystery or thriller reader, but in movies and films, I'm like that, that's something I can appreciate all day. Yeah, I think the school uniforms in the movie as well, that kind of like when everyone saw that, like, oh my God, it looks like an Australian school uniform. 
<laughs> it's like we've all worn something like that which just brings you back yeah and it's surprising i don't know what cheryl's thoughts about this is but this movie did really well at the box office for an australian film like it's i think it's in the top 20 highest grossing australian movies just past priscilla queen of the desert which i mean that's a classic i suppose how dare it surpass priscilla that's like the pinnacle of australian <laughs> cinema like it's priscilla muriel's wedding the dry I, I don't care that I haven't seen it. <laughs> Muriel's Wedding. I was like, as long as it doesn't surpass Muriel's Wedding, we're okay. That's probably why I'm uh, against it in this case. But no, I mean, I like the details. Like you said, Kevin, some things the movie did get right was those small things like the uniforms. And, you know, um, I think the way the town was laid out and everything, you could just see that it was what you would expect. Um even though they kept referring to them as grades instead of years, which I think is maybe geared towards an international audience. I was like, grade three, what are you on about? But, um, (laughs) you know, it depends how you read it. Like, if you are there just to casually observe, I think it's a good film. But maybe if you're like, nitpicking it a little too much then that's where it starts to fall apart because there isn't again enough time to just explore the plot in full and that's what makes the book better than the film as with most books but in this case in particular what did you guys oh i guess cheryl what did you think about eric banner um, especially but the casting oh i don't know if ari found this but Because for me, such a big part of the book was about how he was so pale, this like white blonde kid who was constantly getting sunburnt, right? And then you have Eric Bana, who's called Dark and Handsome Guy, which is totally not what they described in the book. And like, they just, they ruined that. It's supposed to be this little guy who doesn't fit in in a rural area, who gets sunburnt indoors kind of thing, being out in the outback and, you know, going against his comfort zone. And that was like what made it even more interesting that he was staying there. And when you have this big macho guy on the Film, it just I don't know what did you think Ari that's so funny I feel like if I read the book I totally would have been so confused but because I I just watched the movie without any previous knowledge of, of the story as soon as I saw him on my screen I was like oh my god this man is so attractive and I told I made sure to tell everyone that as well I was like why you know usually in Australian films you know we have some incredible Australian actors but I hadn't, I don't think I've watched anything that Eric Bana has done in the past, but I really liked, I mean, I feel like for adults, you can definitely appreciate like the acting talent and things like that because they've had those years of experience to build on it. But something that I really enjoyed was the younger cast, the younger versions of the four kids that were best friends. I really enjoyed their acting and I thought that especially the younger Eric Barnard was incredible, especially like when he was reacting to um, Ellie's death in the movie. I just thought like they they captured like like the um, the essence of the friendship really really nicely, and it was really nice and cohesive. So I definitely could appreciate the casting from just a surface level from someone who's just watched the movie. But as a reader, I can I know a hundred percent if I read the book and you're blonde haired, blue eyed, and I go watch the movie and you're brown haired, brown eyed. I'm going to be irritated. I'm going to be disappointed, even like, especially if I did like the book. So I can definitely understand any irritation that's there or any kind of confusion. I feel like usually like book to movie adaptations, they usually stay the same. So yeah, it was weird to me when when you just mentioned that it was completely different. And I feel like that might 
create some kind of degree of separation between readers and, and the movie, which might make like cause a discrepancy in actually liking it, like that. So. I just looked up some photos from the film and my f- first thought was just all of these people are far too attractive for these characters. I-, I know that that's pretty much always the case with book to film adaptations. People look gawky in books and that's just not allowed in films. But it's like these people are well-regarded Australian actors. They don't look like just normal people. And as said, I think that that was part of the appeal for me, just the sense that it felt like a real rural town, it felt like a real rural community, and even though the events were extreme and unusual, it was all okay, I went along with it, because they all felt so real. And it's like, all of these hot people don't belong in that rural town. I mean, it also depends whether or not you know Eric Bana from other films. Like, I've seen him in The Hulk and The Time Traveler's Wife, both of which I didn't really like him in because I didn't feel like he suited the roles very well. But it's very different to see like Hollywood type production versus Australian film, Australian accents, Outback. So that kind of disjointedness in that perception of him also maybe threw it over the edge for me, but it might have been different for anyone else. I feel like I haven't seen Eric Banner this good in a long time. Like he feels more at home in this movie because he's using his own voice, right? And I guess subconsciously for actors, I just, I mean, think about like if Matthew McConaughey did a movie without that voice. Like, he would feel unnatural a little bit as well, right? So, yeah, it's it's definitely there. But I think Axel was right. Everyone's so attractive. And it's such a movie thing. Um, You always get, like, those movies where a character's supposed to be the outcast because they they look a certain way, and you're like, you're the most attractive person I know. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. I actually really like the casting. I think the three best cast characters, Eric Bana's not bad. Young Ellie's really good. And also the police officer. I really liked the police officer character because he was he was like the most innocent guy in the movie. Like he just has a wife and kids and wants to do well. And he's so timid. I kind of like those kind of characters because they're just, you know, caught up in the middle of everything. And the actor played him well. <laughs> like I felt bad for him. I feel like his portrayal was entirely different from how I had read him. I'd read him as kind of this like short portly guy with like, you know, um, darker hair and all that, like really used to the bush, leathery, tough skin. And then you have this kind of brown, reddish haired kind of, you know, like maybe skinny, not really like very muscly for that particular role. But like you said, I actually preferred the movie version than how I had imagined him because it seemed to fit the role better in some way. So that was a very good casting of the police officer. See, that's really strange to me because I envisioned him, which I think is backed up by the book. Like he came from a more urban area. He was new to the outback and he was, I think, short and stocky and he was muscly, but he was chubby too. But he didn't look entirely at home but he so wanted to work hard anyway. Like just the little thing of, I think it happens a couple of times that the secretary wants to close up the police station early and he goes, no, we stay open for, for our opening hours because that's what we do. That's, that's our role in this town. So his sincerity and his work ethic, I really liked the idea of him as not like a heroic looking guy and not particularly skinny and strong, but just like, this sturdy dude who wants to do his best. So I, I don't know. I'm going to go away and watch the film, but I'm, I'm going to be sad to be disillusioned of um, that casting in my head. What I really want to know 
for the guys especially, is how convincing did you find the male perspective as written by a female author? Because I know that when you have male authors who write female characters, it's usually a letdown. There are some exceptions, like I know George R. R. Martin's portrayal of women in Game of Thrones is pretty spot on. And there are obviously other exceptions that aren't coming to mind right now. But generally speaking, like male characters are written by male authors and female characters are written by female authors. How does this play out in the scheme of things for you guys? You know what, now that you brought it up, I actually think it's a big strength of the novel, perhaps, because what I think is, I, I do read a lot of crime and a lot of crime written by the typical kind of spy thrillers or like crime thrillers written by, you know, the old men from London. They're very cold in terms of the characters, right? It's more about the atmosphere and the crime and whatnot. Whereas this one, there's more like a feminine side to Aaron, which a lot of men like him, you know, have, right? And it's kind of brought out in a way that I really appreciate it. So like, he's a really emotional man. And I'm not saying being emotional is feminine. You get what I mean? Like from a literature standpoint, yeah. Um, and I think I really appreciated that because you don't see that a lot. Um, and maybe that's why I connected with, the story a bit more from a reader's perspective but it's just me so I, I i love jane harper's writing like her other books as well just gets better and better i must admit to being a bit of a sexist reader in that i usually enjoy books written by women much more and a lot of it is about more of a depth of character and a warmth of character and a, perhaps not warmth but a psychological richness which I don't think that there are exceptions, of course, some male authors do it beautifully, but largely women are better at it. And I just have this terrible habit of not looking at who the author is when I start a book. And I think just because of the genre, maybe, or yeah, I, I think it's because crime genre of city guy goes back to rural community. Um, he's a big shot police officer. I assumed it was a male author. And reading the book, I was like, oh, I love this. I'm so surprised that this was written by a guy. And then I, I looked at her name and was like, oh, okay, cool. Not written by a guy. But I, 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 I found, yeah, I found Aaron a great protagonist. And I don't think he was especially emotional as, as a character. But the fact that he was experiencing emotions was portrayed um, rather than there just being action. And that's something that I think a lot of male authors don't do. They'll know that a male character is doing something because of an emotional reason, but they don't portray any of that emotion. So yeah, that all comes with the disclaimer of I'm yeah, a sexist reader. <laughs> I think part of it as well is it's more about how in her crime novels, the way she describes the psychology of women, of female characters, you have a lot of those crime novels with femme fatales or like the mysteries revolved around, you know, a man's wife and, and her friend and whatever, like those kind of B-grade plots, right? And every time I read, I'm just like, oh, I don't think people think, I don't think it happens like that. But then in Jane Harper's second novel, Force of Nature, it also Aaron Forbes in that as well. Without spoiling anything, the whole plot is about female characters from a particular private school. It's kind of like this where like people go back to a small town, whereas the mystery in that is like, you grow up in a private school, you send your daughters to, a, to the same private girls' school and it, you know, bad things happen because of that and it's gossip and, and, and all of that. And it could have come across as so, like, gross and fake and, and, and everything. 
But the way Jane Harper wrote about it, after I read it, I was like, damn, this is an issue in Australian private schools. Like, I, I got passionate. I was like, she wrote it so well that I, I was like, yeah, something like this could happen because of that culture. Yeah. And she didn't do it in a way that was like, oh, look at these gossipy women. So, I, I yeah, sorry. I'm going on a tangent now, but I do appreciate the, the psychology and she puts behind her characters. It's it's interesting that that was her second book, the the premise, because reading The Dry, I was reminded of a book called The Lake of Dead Languages by Carol Goodman. And its whole premise is set at a girls' private school and has the same split narrative structure that The Dry does of modern day mystery harping back to what happened when the characters were teenagers. To the extent that I, I really suspected that Harper might have been inspired by Lake of Dead Languages. So it's interesting that she used the same premise in, in her next book. I mean, I guess it's a pretty standard premise for a, lo- a lot of crime, but just stylistically, particularly the focus on the environment, like the Lake of Dead Languages is set in Vermont, I think, and the constant snow and the sense of just being trapped in ice drove a lot of the narrative in the same way that the drought did uh, in this book. I think it's interesting that you both think of um, further crime thrillers as things that you kind of linked to this book in a way, because I felt like it was just another one of those crime thrillers, yes. But the thing that really kind of reminded me of the other book that I really did like, which was um, A Gentleman in Moscow by Mort Howes, was the little descriptions because his book has, you know, he talks about the constellations of freckles on a woman's back and those little tiny details like that, like when he's sneaking into a room to steal his passport and then he mentions, you know, that he's glad that um, it's a younger couple because an older couple would definitely get up because they'd have to use the bathroom more. And just small mentions like that. It's similar to what you mentioned earlier, Axel, with the ring of condensation that Gretchen runs her fingers through. That's what it made me think of, as opposed to like, books with similar plots or similar driving forces to crime because I felt like that part of the book had dragged a little bit for me the the third like the middle third of this book really was just like when's it going to get to the point it's like the plot thickens and thickens again and thickens again just get to it already but the little details is um what I actually enjoyed as opposed to the kind of similarities to other crime so it's interesting that you guys have a totally different perspective on that though well, part of uh, what was weird about reading The Lake of Dead Languages, the one I've, I've compared the dry to, is that it sort of felt like the crime plot was just thrown in there at the last minute. It was meant to be an exploration of these characters' psyches and growth from teenagehood to adulthood. And yeah, it, it was just the plot thickens, the plot thickens, the plot thickens. So I don't know. I feel they're quite similar books in the fact that the, the crime is fine enough fairly formulaic, I suspect, but what makes it a really strong book is is the detail and, and the details of the characters' psyches. Yeah. Was anyone surprised by the ending of this book? I know I've already mentioned I wasn't really, but I know others who have been, so I'm interested to see what your take is on um, who actually did it. About which crime? Both the crimes? Either, both. <laughs> okay. You know, I was surprised at the Lutz family reveal when I first read it. I think I was surprised because it, it, at first I was like, what, that came out of nowhere? Who, like, why is this character the one who did it? But then once I understood, like, his reason, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of smart and out of left field and, you know, everything else was a red herring, et cetera. So, I, 
Yeah, I was surprised about that. I wasn't so so surprised about Ellie. Like I kind of knew that Aaron, I was like, okay, Aaron and Luke, it's not Luke, it's not Aaron. It's probably something to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. I never try to predict the endings of crime because I'm I'm not good at it. Like I just get very taken in with the thing. Everyone is a suspect, so I can't be bothered trying to work work it out. It seemed very natural, the ending to Ellie's plot. And I really liked the character that did the modern day crimes at first. Like I thought he was one of those nice details of just someone who exists in the real world. And I guess that that might be Harper's point in terms of it is not necessarily, it's not someone who seems villainous that is the villain. But I felt sort of sad about it, just that he wasn't as nice as he seemed. But yeah, it wasn't hugely surprising. How did you find it, Ari, watching the film? Sorry, Kevin. I won't lie to you, by the end of the film, I got quite bored. And Ellie has this monologue at the end that kind of, in a way, explains what happened to her. But I think for me, it was the one thing that was really overpowering for me was the fact that there were two mysteries. And maybe it's just me and my incompetence and I can't comprehend two mysteries at the same time. But it was the fact that up until the very end, I was still trying to figure out what what was happening. And of course, like we probably have quite polar opposite opinions on this because you have read the book and you have watched the movie, but at least two of you have. So at that point, I, I was still trying to sort out all, all my thoughts and like trying to figure out everything. So, you know, I ne- I didn't really appreciate the end as much. Um, and I, as I said before, I didn't feel as though it was a cohesive kind of ending, which is what it's either in a mystery, it's either an unsolved kind of cliffhanger or it gets solved. And that's that's kind of what I like in my books. But when it's still kind of cloudy in its judgment and it's still quite ambiguous, at least that's how I felt about the ending, I don't really appreciate that. And obviously that's backed up by the fact that there was two mysteries and I was still trying to work through it and things like that. So I'm so sorry if that, that's probably my own incompetence of please guys. Like I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to keep up with the story. But um, so I think that was that part of what I was feeling quite like it, it overpowered any possibility of me actually paying attention to the ending even because I, on one hand, I was quite bored of the story, but on the other hand, I was like trying to make sense of everything. So and I, I, I don't really have that in mystery or thriller films. I usually am always like on board and I'm usually always understanding everything that's that's happening. So it was really weird for me. And I, I think I was explaining to Kevin before that I don't really, I like thrillers and I like psychological thrillers, but when they are executed properly, when, you know, you're following every step of the main protagonist or antagonist or whatever. When you're following their journey and you're on board and maybe you realise things later or earlier, that's fine. Regardless, I feel like when you're still parallel with the story, it's it's something you can appreciate. But with this, I feel as though like the two mysteries combined, even though they didn't really have much relation to each other, I felt as though it was like a poor attempt at with the movie becoming a psychological thriller. I felt as though it was trying to be something it couldn't be. If that makes any sense, I'm, I'm so sorry, that might be a little bit cloudy, but I just felt as though I was trying too hard at being this like show-stopping kind of psychological thriller. That's how I felt at least. Obviously after this conversation, it's a little bit more clarified to me. And, you know, after days of reflection, I can kind of 
put together what she was trying to do. But I just felt as though it, it didn't translate very well in, in the film. And that's what kind of made me lose interest progressively until the end. So to answer your very, you know, short and easy question, Axel, and that very complicated answer, I lost interest and I didn't understand. And it's because of that kind of double mystery kind of thing. But yeah, that might just be me as well. I mean, I thought the double mystery was what made it interesting. Like I said before, Ellie's ending was very much expected. And what happened to Luke's family? I mean, okay, spoilers alert for anyone listening. If you haven't read the book, Basically, like as soon as the teacher was introduced, I expected it to be him because I just always think everything is red herring and, you know, it must be some kind of plot twist. Otherwise, what is the point? So as soon as they were like planting the tree, I was like, it's going to be him, isn't it? There's going to like, I don't know the reason yet, but it's going to be him. And I was really hoping it wouldn't be. And it reminded me a little bit of like how much I hated The Fault in Our Stars. Okay, I'm sorry, people are going to hate me for saying this. But like the fault in our stars, they just die at the end of cancer. And I'm like, well, that was expected, wasn't it? And it was the one who wasn't originally still in, who was originally in remission, right? Like, that's what you expect because everyone's like, oh, it's so sad. I was thinking like, maybe they were both fine. And then one got hit by a car or something that would make a good ending, right? And for this book, I was like, I wanted it to be like the grandmother or something who had killed the whole family because they want to take the farm back and they needed money or something like that. And, you know, she was trying to, because, you know, she keeps shaking the baby when the baby's already asleep. And that to me was like, maybe that's a hint. Maybe that's what it's going to be. And that's going to be the big plot twist, right? Or like with Ellie's story, I wanted it to be Gretchen who had done it, right? It was like, that would make sense because of jealousy or something, right? And it would be kind of twisted because Gretchen's the popular girl and it'd be what you didn't expect but everything just went out so perfectly and I think because it follows this crime formula like it's unexpected enough for people who don't read crime and even I myself don't read a lot of crime but this was one where you're like well if you've read one you've read it all and that's what didn't sit well with me and then the fact that they then have to take chapters at the end explaining what happened with the teacher instead of just being like oh well that was it and then it goes on to his own perspective and the whole drama of him trying to start a bushfire and I don't know. I can kind of yeah I can kind of agree with you the whole the teacher thing I I didn't see it coming I'm being quite honest but it wasn't like a reveal that I was like oh my god of course it was him or oh my god I can't believe it was him it was like who is this person because I feel as though in the movie they didn't really flesh him out a lot which is fine like I don't really expect that and he had like a couple of appearances but it didn't for me it it wasn't enough to stimulate any suspicion or or maybe in retrospect kind of make you second guess it and I, like uh, just to put in comparison, one of my favorite movies, or at least favorite thrillers, is Prisoners, which basically follows like a kidnapping and it's pretty much there's like actually quite a parallel. It's like a detective who's trying to figure out who has kidnapped these two children, which is like Faulkner and things like that. That's actually quite funny that I realize that now. And at the end, I won't spoil it, but the person who does it, even though it comes as a surprise, when you look back and when you re- reflect on the story you can automatically kind of put together the pieces and see they had nuanced kind of actions that on surface level don't really mean anything. But when they have fleshed out the story and the characters and, you know, they had like a, an underlying plot and things like that, once they flesh that out and you're, you know, going with the detective, you're 
with the detective every step of his way. It's incredible how at the moment of realization of who did it, you also realize it along with the detective. So like you're on the same page, if you, if you know what I mean. And of course, I can totally respect and understand how there can be different approaches in crime. Of course, you can realize it later, earlier, whatever. And I respect that. But something I can really appreciate is, especially when the perpetrator is quite very like unexpected, if you can at least look back and see like all kind of put together the pieces as to why I feel like that's something that is quite important and for me when watching the movie I I still couldn't figure it out and I'm, I'm not sure whether that was clouded again by the double mystery thing I feel like if I read the book it would definitely provide some some kind of reinforcement to whatever positives the story kind of has but at the same time I don't think I, I don't feel as though someone should have to read the book when watching the movie to understand and actually appreciate it. I think that's just one of those things that gets lost in translation with the film though, right? That's the thing that I really took issue with. It's like all those small little details. Like in the film, um, when he goes to ask Jamie what bullets he uses, Jamie says, oh, like Winchester's or Remington's, whatever's cheapest. But in the book, it's very, very clear that no one used Remington's. That's why that was the big question mark. And then at the end, it goes click, oh, that's where it came from. And in the book, another detail that I loved that was there from the beginning is that Falk, he looks at the pictures of the crime scene and he notices these four horizontal muddy stripes on the back of um, Luke's ute in the bid there um which as we find out is how he figures out it was the bicycle right and that's just completely lost in the film and all those small little details that cue you in and really make it an interesting story I think maybe that's also where your confusion comes from because they've just omitted all these little things that might seem unimportant to whoever's adapting it right as a casual observer but are really what makes the story and kind of explains it to you thoroughly from the beginning out of curiosity, were there any big plot changes, contrary to detail changes from book to film? I don't think so. I think it's mostly details, but given the speed with which the film moves through everything and how they reorder some of the scenes as well, that just makes it very, very different in the way it's carried across. Yeah, I think it's an it's a <clears throat> issue of adaptation, not that they actively change anything. To be honest, I feel like because the book was so loved, when they were writing, when they were adapting, they're like, okay, let's not change any big things. Yeah. So overall, I think it's a successful adaptation, but it sort of has that fatal flaw of just not having the same space for detail. Yeah, cool. I'd say for people who've only seen the film, it's successful. For people who've read the book, it's maybe not successful. I wouldn't use such a strong term, but... <laughs> really? I, I, it's interesting because I feel like I wouldn't like the movie... Uh, if I hadn't read the book, it was almost like I read the book and I loved the book so much. So seeing it play out, I was like, oh, it's not that good. But you know what? I like it. It was like a weird kind of that. Yeah. Because my parents, I saw it with my parents. I brought them along and I was like, hey, the book is amazing. And they, my mom loves this type of movie. Like I showed her Gone Girl and she loved Gone Girl, right? The movie. But she listened to the Chinese audiobook of Gone Girls when she loved it. Anyway, she didn't really like the drive. She was like, as soon as the principal came on screen, I knew there was something up with him. And I was like, how did you know that? Apparently he closed a door weirdly or something. Just not so my good mom vibes. knew that immediately. Yeah, just not good vibes. Um, so she came back and she was like, oh, just 
just a crime thing. Yeah, I think like with the door closing, I picked up on that as well um, because I remember distinctly in the book, there was a scene where they describe how um, the principal, he leaves his jacket on his chair because he says it's the universal sign for popped out for a bit going to be back. Right. And he doesn't do that in the film. And then he like looks around and he shuts the door. And I'm like, well, now you just look suspicious. Cool. To wrap up, um, what is on everyone's shelf? What are you reading right now? I'm reading The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern. And I'm a few years behind the trend of it, but I'm utterly in love with it. I feel I have never felt so strongly before that I am the target demographic of a book. Like, I feel like she wrote this just knowing I'd be a sucker for it. She knew there'd be some queer nerd who's sort of into fairy tales and mythology who would just adore this book. So I think I'm just going to reread it as soon as I'm done. <laughs> That's a good recommendation. Kevin, what are you reading? I've been really bad recently in that a couple months. I I've also been really busy this year, so I haven't read that much. But a couple months ago, I think I talked about how I just started Haruki Murakami's Norwegian Wood. Yep. And I, I love the first five chapters and I still do love the first five chapters. The rest of the novel kind of scarred me. It really did scar me. I think it just went to a place of no return. Like everyone ended up super weirdly emotional and spoilers and like every combination of like characters sleeping together happened. And then there are a couple deaths that made me depressed. So after reading that, I put it to the side and I was like, okay, I need to process this. Yeah, right, Axel. I mean, we can bond over it sometime, but yeah, Norwegian Wood is, man, weird. But then what happened was my life kind of became like a Murakami novel for a couple months too, in the weirdest way. And I'm still, yeah, anyway, so that's why I haven't read that much. <laughs> yeah. Have there been deaths and lots of affairs? Is that what you're saying? Like um, magic no realism? Uh, okay. No comment. Cool. Yeah, which is like yeah, 20, basically you're living in Grey's Anatomy, right? Because your description of that book was just like affairs, deaths, Grey's Anatomy is basically what you said. That's what I heard anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. So my, my year's been interesting. So that's that. I did start another Murakami book because so I, I am like that for some reason, even though Norwegian was about me. So I finished the first third of the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And have you read it, Axel? Yeah. 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 So the the last two chapters of part one, all just it scarred me. So this has been sitting on my desk for a while. I haven't continued because I'm just trying to process what it means. I don't know. And there's a chapter called On the Nature of Pain, which also scarred me. And then the whole Sino-Japanese war segment in Mongolia where someone's skinned alive and I don't understand why they are. I don't understand why it happens. And then part one just ends and I'm like, okay, cool, dude, you, you're weird. I'll get back to you at some point. But I have, I've been, um, I've been reading the Bible a bit. So there, those are my- For fun? Yep, or just oh, general I, spiritual I, uh, enrichment? Writing? I suppose, I mean, I recently started going to church. So that's why, yeah. I feel like reading the Bible does enrich a lot of other reading in, in general, like even outside of a religious context, because so much will just inevitably refer back to the Bible. Um, so true, actually. And now I yeah. know what the English teacher meant when she was talking about the illusion. Well, I do remember, isn't it, who's the really famous atheist? I can't remember, a really famous atheist who was like, 
I think it might be Dors, Richard, uh, one of those people. He was like, um, if someone in the English-speaking world hasn't read the Bible, you're kind of bordering on the barbarian or something. He said it in a very extreme way, which I don't agree with, but something interesting there, literature-wise, in terms of religious texts. Ari, what have you been reading? I don't know if I said this in the previous episode, but I'm reading, I'm still reading The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by Victoria Schwab. Um, love Victoria Schwab. I love how she writes men. I love how she, um, <laughs> I feel like um, I really enjoy her writing style. Some of her characters I don't really like, mainly in her Dark Shade of Magic kind of series, but that's okay. That's like fantasy YA, so maybe it's just my taste. But I'm really loving it. Really like the concept of it. I feel like she's an author who comes up with really great plots and and twists and things like that like it's a really she seems like a really imaginative person which I'm sure most authors are but I just really like how her she approaches her stories um but yeah this one I think it just follows a girl who makes a deal with a god that she shouldn't have made a deal with or she was told not to I guess, communicate or interact with, but she did out of desperation. And it just follows her actions and consequences, which is basically, essentially, um, she wanted to live a life of freedom. And so now she has become immortal at the cost of no one remembering her at all. So she can't have any relationships or friendships or any really interactions without that person forgetting who she is. Um, And she just lives like lives and until one day she meets someone who remembers her. So it's really, really cool. It's a really interesting story. It's a little bit slow, but you know what? I think it's a really good book for, it's not something, it's not like incredibly compelling, but I would definitely recommend it for for people who like to like just revisit books or or kind of just thread it within their other kind of daily tasks. Is it a standalone? Uh, It is a standalone, yeah. That's a big win for a lot of books. Yeah. Yeah, especially because like most of her other books uh, are series or, or duologies or things like that. So I'm pretty sure this is her first standalone, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. Uh, it's called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. So definitely pick it up. I hate, by the way, can I just say this? I hate A5, whatever this dimension is. I hate those covers. Abolish them, get rid of them, outlaw them. What person thinks yeah let me just make a book bigger than the size of someone's head like I hate that I hate that just condense it I don't care if it gets longer I hate it I'm sorry that was an outburst but I hate it I literally hate it it's so disgusting and it doesn't line up with any other books on your shelf it's disgusting I think that's the one one size larger than a5 maybe but um yes I agree they're hard to hold hard to open there is a perfect size and that is not it But yeah, the one I'm reading, thankfully, is nicely done, nice size. It's The Wild Silence by Raynor Wynn. And it is the follow-on from The Salt Path, which we've actually discussed on this podcast before. And like I've said about The Salt Path, I hate hiking. I hate nature. But that book, which is entirely about hiking and nature, made me want to go outdoors and go for a walk because the language was just so powerful and the descriptions were so great. And the story, which is a nonfiction memoir, by the way, is so emotional as she talks about her life and everything that's gone wrong and how she's trying to find her place in the world again. So this is quite an interesting follow-on because this basically picks up from where the last book left off and I actually like it more because it's about her writing process and how she actually came to write The Salt Path and publish it and how she's dealing 
with returning to society and living in a house after having spent a year in the wild and trying to find a reconnection with being able to trust people and at the same time holding on to that love for nature that she's rediscovered from her childhood. So I'm almost done with it. It's very, very interesting. Would definitely recommend. I would say like nonfiction is not for everyone and maybe you want to skip the salt path, but you could read this on its own. And I do think it's one of those that's worth reading because the way she describes things and the language of it is just so powerful that it's enjoyable to some extent that even fiction and fantasy cannot possibly convey something in the way she describes the real world. It's just beautiful. That sounds amazing. I love authors that can do that. (laughs) Cool. So thank you everyone who has listened to this incredibly long podcast. If you would like to listen to more, you can tune in for our next episode, which will be a special collaboration that I'll let Axel give a little info on right now. So I'm a representative today of Unsweetened Literary Journal, which is one of Blitz's sibling publications. Blitz and Unsweetened are teaming up with Culture Cafe, which is UNSW's leading body supporting international students to develop friendship and positive cultural experiences in Australia. So Blitz and Unsweetened are super into media, Culture Cafe is super into culture. Um, So we are combining our efforts uh, towards a book club in translation. So each term, we're going to be looking at one or two books in translation from uh, original language to English. We're going to talk about what translation entails, the literature of the originating nation, and have guest speakers talk about, and have bilingual guest speakers speak about the differences between the original text and the English translation. Our first episode will be coming out on Friday the 23rd at 4pm, I believe, and we will be discussing when Before the Coffee Gets Cold by, I have forgotten his name, but anyway. Azu Kawaguchi. Cool, thank you. Uh, So please do join us. If you can't join us live, you will be able to listen to it as a podcast episode. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Please join us then. Yeah, so if you're interested in translations, definitely tune in. And until next time, thank you for listening.